You're listening to the Pursuing Alpha podcast, hosted by Charles Brandon Snyder. Hey, man, I appreciate you uh, being on the show with us. It's been a couple of weeks since we've had a show. We've been moving and, and traveling and all kinds of stuff, but I wanted really to take some time, introduce yourself. Uh, it's Josh Allen. There's a lot of Josh Allens in West Texas here, but uh, yeah, take a take a little time and tell us, because, you know, it's kind of hard to stand uh, with you. It's not like you do one thing. It's like you, you have your hands in so many things from real estate to the energy industry, to a little bit of everything. I mean, it's you do a lot. Yeah, so uh, Josh Allen here, and um, I like to describe myself as a highly curious human being. And, um, you know, you've, you've probably done... Curiosity has been a, an interesting topic of curiosity opens up lots of different doors, lots of different rabbit rabbit trails, lots of dead ends. But curiosity, ultimately, I think when, when you lean into curiosity... Um, and you, you know, you apply certain metrics and I'm a former CPA. So I kind of look at the world through the financial lens. Um, it, it has opened the doors of, you know, started in real estate probably 20 plus years ago. And, and that business has really kind of grown and morphed into reside real estate, our mutual crazy, great friend, Casey Klingen Smith and Mark Murray and I've kind of had the privilege of launching our own bro- brokerage reside real estate, Co., which has been a lot of fun. A lot of great people have come along beside us, but yeah, my <coughs> wife's with you. And, and what I love about real estate um, is I kind of started on the financial end of things. Like, and you may not even know, I ran a little small hedge fund with a buddy of mine who traded commodities, futures, options, Forex. We did a lot of stuff around that. And then I kind of bled into real estate. But with real estate, it's kind of this, I almost call it the, the, the spoke of the wheel that has all of these different hubs that come out of it. Because real estate touches so many different industries. And so our curiosity started going in the line of like, all right, well, um, we're already helping a lot of investors buy property. And my little brain said, why don't we become the lender on real estate deals when they're kind of in a private and they don't fit in the traditional box. Mm. So 10 plus years ago, I just started dabbling and trying and failing on being a private lender for an investor deals. And it kind of morphed into, we were, we were being the mortgage company for investors or people just couldn't quite buy under traditional mortgage lending. And then now I've kind of run now I've got a you know, 10 to $20 million book of loans for investors buying fix and flips and rentals and small multifamily stuff. And because I understand real estate, I understand the the risk profile of like, all right, I'll lend on that property or that property. I won't lend on that one. So I can kind of take the risk analysis of would I want to own that property if I ever had to take it back as a lender. And mm-hmm. if, it, if I would, um, then it, it matches my profile and metric for being a lender. And then I create the lender spread. So LBK lending is kind of our lending arm and then title, right? Every single real estate has to go through a title transaction, escrow transaction. And, you know, we're sending just gobs of business to title companies. And we've got great relationships with some of them. Others, you know, like anything, you kind of wish it was a better experience. Sure. And we started asking the question of like, why don't we start our own title company? And, this is always those dumb entrepreneur questions. We don't know what we don't know. We don't know how hard it is. Right. We don't know how to operate it. I'm just dumb enough to know. Let's try it. My always explanation of that is most entrepreneurs jump out of the airplane. They don't even know if they're wearing a parachute yet. And they're like, oh, I'll figure it out on the way down. Right. Or, or here's a better airplane analogy someone gave me. And, he's, and he was doing it one of those disc profile assessments on your personality. And he said, Josh is the kind of personality that will fly an airplane while he's still building it. <laughs> yeah, that's the other way to say it. And it's like, I'm okay, I'm okay doing that. There's a couple parts missing. I mean, that that, you know, Boeing door might pop out. I'm okay. I can make I can still make that work. Sure. And so the title side came out of we're already sending business there. So, you know, one thing about entrepreneurship and when you're starting a business is who's going to be my customer? 
Mm-hmm. Where's revenue going to come from? Um, and can I operate that business functionally from an execution standpoint and so forth? And so we feel like we had already solved, in my opinion, one of the hardest pieces. That is, we will be the customer. We're already sending enough business to have a revenue base day one that we can fill in the blanks. We can go hire people. We can cover operations. We can figure those other pieces out. Sure. But the business has got to come from somewhere. We control the business. So that led us down the path. And, and quite honestly, I think like any any entrepreneurial startup, you got to have really talented operators. Finding good talent, mm. finding sticky talent, and making sure they mesh well with what you're trying to do and they have the same vision is one of the hardest things Absolutely. you can ever do. And, and the problem is, as an entrepreneur, is you you're the one that takes all the risk when you do it. They think it's, you know, they look at people that don't run businesses and they work for that W2 income. There, there's good things on both sides of it. But the hardest thing that I think I get to have great conversations with a lot of business owners, they're always biggest complaint is employees on, they can't find enough of them. They can't find qualified ones. They can't get them to stay. You know, there's always that thing. And we created, you rewind 40 years ago, you, you went to work for one company for yeah, 40 years and yeah. you're, you know what I'm saying? 50 years ago, whatever that was. But now it's like, it, it's almost like if you stay for, with somebody for three to five years, man, you got somebody that's really yeah. good and grounded with you. So it, it's hard to do that. And I, I will second, and I will, what you're saying there, it's just execution operation to make sure you have somebody that can run it. It's the hardest things. Cause we look at a lot of deals and we look at a lot of opportunities and that's always been the, the one that we gravitate for is I don't want to be the operator no. of this business. And if, if it goes sideways, you know, who's going to operate. It's one of the biggest key things. I think that people overlook when they get into business together, but the other two are, you know, Finding the customer is not easy either. No, it's it's not. It, it's not. And I think again, I think we've we've shifted a little bit. Again, you know, when you're when you're just starting and again, you're kind of dumb enough or you know crazy enough to go, we're, we're just going to try this out. And again, I'll say it was a total god thing and an alignment of the right operator when we first launched True Title here in Lubbock, which you know we had offices right next to you for a number of years, still there on 122nd. And so our operator president at the time, uh, Emily Herring just has been just an absolute rock star. And sometimes you don't, you know, you don't know that I've said this a lot to people is you can do all the disc assessments. Uh, you can certainly see the track record of people and that's going to, you know, imply, we think we're getting this person, but sometimes you don't know sure. how big, how great of a rock star you're getting or how, how average of a person you're getting. And for us, we just came across the absolute ideal person to help a launch a, a Lubbock location, which has been a, a great success. And our model really has been around a partnering model, which is let's go to some of the other um, professionals in our field in real estate who's influencing, directing, controlling a lot of real estate business, i.e. agents, builders, lenders are typically your, your three forces. Mm-hmm. And let's see if our vision of owning a, a title operation aligns with them. Is there an alignment of character, alignment of integrity, alignment of production? And then as we kind of put those pieces together, Emily was just an incredible operator, so much so as our brains begin to look at, well, can we do this in more locations than just Lubbock? Right, the models worked great here. Um, can we bottle up the ingredients, reproduce it somewhere, else. and go into other markets where we've got relationships, identify other, you know, agent lender builders, share the vision, and then 
can we go find an operator in those markets? Right. right. And again, the same challenge always presents itself. We, we can find the right people, but where we've really settled on it is we won't open a new location. Like we're looking at locations right now in Houston, Uptown, Post Oak, you know, Gallery, Air of Houston. And we've got all of the partners ready to go on board, but we haven't yet identified fully that operator. So I, I'm shocked that you're going to tier one markets, though. Um, and not tier two markets, because it seems like your your niche that, and it, it could be, it's just like, hey, we figured it out. If you make it work here in smaller markets, you can definitely make it work in bigger markets. Sometimes that's easier, and sometimes that's a lot harder, because there's a lot more competition. So 100%. Yeah. Right. And so, you know, being in Amarillo, being in Midland, I, I thought you were fixing to say that, but I, I'm a little shocked that you're going into well, actually it's, tackling It's kind of been interesting, the, the trajectory that we've taken, and I'd say the trajectory was kind of first led by relationships. So I kind of had a guy that I mentored a little bit in real estate, got his license, ended up moving to South Texas, uh, into McAllen, um, Edinburgh area. Mm-hmm. And so conversation was like, Hey, is your title experience for you and your real estate team and company? Great. No, it's horrible. Okay. So if we could bring a better title experience, you know, that's kind of, there's pain presented. If you can solve the pain sure. with a better solution, um, an incentivized solution, Hey, there's where the opportunity could go. So we literally started our expansion in the title world, uh, in tertiary markets. So McAllen, Edinburgh being one of the first locations, little did I know, um, although it's, it's, it's a different kind of a market. There's a million plus people down in South Texas, Brownsville, McAllen, Edinburgh, um, Harlingen. But are you doing it from here? Or are you doing it? Did you find somebody down there? Oh no, hundred percent. Yeah. So we found operators, down okay, there, escrow team, et cetera. Yeah. You know, we, we can, we can manage a lot of the back office stuff, but the, you know, day to day front office, brick and mortar, Shaking hands, making sure everything's signed right, doing all the other 100%, stuff. 100%. Yeah. That's and in those don't you markets. have to be in the county anyways just to make sure title's pulled correctly? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So you get, you know, title insurance and examinations for each of those counties. So switch, stay on the same uh, theme with me, but shift gears and explain that to the people that don't understand what title does yeah. and title means. Because I think I got a, we got a, quite a few listeners that yeah. go through and buy houses and they're like, why am I what, getting title? Yeah. What, yeah. What does that mean? So pause I, that for two seconds. Let's come back after a quick commercial here and. The opinions voiced in this podcast are for general information only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual. To determine which strategies or investments may be suitable for you, consult the appropriate qualified professional prior to making a decision. All right, man. So uh, jumping back into it, right before we took a break, we talked about something really cool. Um, it's talking about your new business. or It's not even new. How long has your title company been around? I think it's... Yeah, I mean, we're now pushing eight plus years. I, I, guess, I was, I was years. guessing five. Yeah. So you're at eight now, right? Yeah. But, uh, and, and you kind of gave the model of how you created it, but I want to rewind for a split second yep. and actually explain what title is. Yep. Why do you have to have a title company? What's the purpose on it? For a lot of people, especially first time home buyers and things like that, need to understand understand the process of what clean title is and why it's important. So can you unpack that? So I, I like to give visual examples because I think that helps us best understand uh, sometimes what can be complicated financial products, mm-hmm. right? And I think that the great visual product or the great visual example is <clears throat> when you buy a house, um, you have to get homeowner's insurance. Why sure. do you get homeowner's insurance? Well, to protect yourself in the very rare but possible instance where a fire will burn the entire house down and now your house is worthless. Right. And so what does an insurance product do? A homeowner's insurance product, it will pay to replace the value of what has burnt down. And if you think about title, title carries a a similar type of um, impact on a home. And so if, if you buy a house from someone who says that they're the owner of it, 
mm-hmm. and you give them $200,000, half a million dollars, whatever that sales price is, and they in turn give you title to their home, you hope that they were the actual owner of that home. You hope that some guy that's, uh, some uncle doesn't come out of the woods six months after you buy the house and go, oh, by the way, he wasn't the owner. I'm the owner of the home. And that half a million dollars that he's got, you owe me. Right. I mean, that would be absolutely catastrophic. It's a problem that exists that we don't even know we need, but it's there because it's so efficient in the way that we buy real estate today. So, and and I'm going to pack that a little bit more. I've kind of reiterate what you just said, but it really comes down to what you're doing is making sure that nobody else owns it, whether it's a bank in a foreclosure, whether it's a previous owner, whether it was set in a trust and it's, you know, state, a divorce issue. You took out a car loan against your house. Yeah, a thousand different things inside there. But this is looking back to the inception of the time of that house. So some of these things could go back 100 years. And we had another guy on, which is John Michael, which was a landman in the mineral side where they have to trace it back 150 years sometimes in minerals, right? On like who owned the land. It's the same thing for housing is what you're getting to. Yeah, and and I think, again, I, I like to get all the way down to the bare bones. And I have this phrase a lot I use, which is, follow the cash, right? Mm-hmm. If, you, if you're evaluating any kind of business opportunity and it looks really intriguing and it looks kind of interesting, I go, follow the dollar bill, like literally trace where the dollars are going and where the dollars are coming from. And if you can create a trace of where the dollars are coming from and, and where they're going, you can begin to get ideas. Does this industry, does this business, does this product, does it have viability? And here's what I mean by all of that. And that is, One of the bedrocks of our entire economy and country is the sovereignty of land ownership and title. That's quite frankly what maybe makes the United States of America one of the most attractive, stable countries, economies, investable places in the world. And that is there is a traceable, trackable, titled ownership history that people can rely upon. Now, if I went over to another foreign country, pick it out, and I plopped down a million dollars for land... I might get titled today, but would I be a little nervous? Oh, of course. That's gone tomorrow. That's not the case here. Why? Because there has been, you know, decades of titled ownership, security of it. And now you understand the financial markets, they've created a financial product that is further protected the risk of capital that wants to invest in it. So now let's go into it. Where does capital want to go? Capital wants to go into investable assets that have security in the long term. A 30-year home mortgage mm-hmm. is one of the most attractive asset classes in the world. How, how many dollars are in the 30-year mortgage markets? Oh, how it's many trillions? Trillions. MBS is one of the biggest products in the, in the world. Okay, right? so w- would trillions of dollars be attracted to this asset class of real estate if there wasn't some type of insurance product to give them assurance that if some Joe Schmo down in Texas County doesn't know how to track title correctly, they wouldn't invest the money there. Sure. The capital would be cut off immediately. Right. And so one of the things that I do love about the title industry is that, yes, like a lot of other industries, we have matured. The default rate on title is, quite frankly, really, really low. Mm. There's some people who could argue that there is so low default on an actual title policy mistake that do we still need the title industry? The data is so good. It's digitized, you know, all so on and so forth. And, and that argument is possible. Like, hey, we've perfected the title process. We know that this is good title or not. But I think you understand the, the risk appetite for people that are committing hundreds of billions of dollars is like, we don't care. 
We want an insurance product sure. to protect our capital. And I think that's really why the title industry, um, where it came from, why it's important is because it helps uh, give confidence to the tens of billions of dollars that banks, private equity, institutional capital, NBS is funneling to keep this real estate animal running. Yeah, it, it, it's neat. I want to touch on a couple of things you just said there. I think that you articulated extremely clearly of why it exists and what it's there for and the purpose of it and why everybody's got to go through title. What I think is interesting is what do you think technology is going to do to an industry? Because we have a vision and we have an idea what it's going to do to our industry. Yep. I think it's going to be... I always say in most industries, everybody says it's going to replace it. I don't think it's going to replace anything. I think technology coming down the pipeline is just going to make it more efficient. You're not going to have to go through, you know, weeks and months of going through a title because what's the average title process? About three weeks? Yep. Right? In the two to and three. We, we can I think probably it's going to get the two to three do days. the title examination process. You know, if, like, for example, someone, it, there's there's no bank you have to go through, but they still want us to do the title exam in the process. So the same process takes place, and we can probably examine title in 48 hours if so need be. break down the process so everybody understands what that yep. is. Yeah. So <clears throat> what happens is someone brings a contract to say, I'm going to buy XYZ property on XYZ lot legal. All right. We send it to our title examination team and our title examination team goes into the county records. This is one of the things that, that makes this country incredible is that it is public record. You have to file and record at your county level, every parcel, every piece of land, anything associated with that piece of land, who's the owners of it, a divorce that goes through it, an estate that happens to it, minerals that are associated with it, liens and loans that are pledged against that parcel, that track. And the releases of those. That's exactly right. And so what the title examiner is doing is that, you know, we'll, we'll have software has digitized and accelerated the examination. But if you can imagine looking at a book, that literally has page after page after page of the entire, ge you know, genealogical history sure. of that parcel and what's happened to it. Um, and you are examining it to make sure that when the next, when, when this transaction comes to a close and we're going to hand title to the next person, that all of the releases, liens, encumbrances, previous owners have been resolved adequately, correctly, and legally according to law. Mm. And again, why? So that confidence is given to the next buyer. And, you know, ultimately when lenders are putting their money into it, they're like, hey, listen, we aren't dropping our million dollar loan sure. on this parcel unless there's confidence in surety in the title that, that's being released and pledged to the next owner. So the title examiner, again, software digitization of county records has helped accelerate that process. So now literally you just kind of pull up your software. You can literally look at it and see the history of it very quickly, see what's current with it. Are there any outstanding loans against it today? Uh, has a state uh, previous owners in the estate? So you can accelerate that examination, uh, but it's still a tedious, thorough, and really important process. I think it's neat. And it takes me back to uh, one one. And I'm going to take it to the mineral side because I had an experience with this where I had a bank and they were like, hey, we got clean title. We went back on some minerals 150 years to the wow. start of the state of yep. Texas. Yep. And we have landmen and we, you know, we do the same thing. It's just in the mineral side. That's right. And we had clean title, but a bank really gave us a hard time because we didn't have a certified 
um, attorney do the valuations oh, wow. on it. Yeah. And so because it wasn't a certified attorney that was put his name on it, and I go, hey, man, our, our guys that did this have been doing it for 25 years, and they're extremely good at what they do. And, and we, we gave you the documents that it provide that it's got a clean title on it, but you want us to go spend $20,000 just to get somebody to rubber stamp the work that we did. And we ended up not using that bank, and I haven't used them since because, of, because the request was so so unusual yeah. when you have clean title and you can prove you had clean title. They just wanted the rubber stamp on it for the bank. But it reinforces the statement that you made that people and in banking institutions and trillions of dollars are not going to lend unless they have some type of insurance, yeah. some type of product, some type of guarantee yep. that there is clean title on it. So I, I think that's, that's everyone lives in a CYA world. It does now today, right? It's it's, it's all see. I mean, again, follow the cash and look at CIA, and yeah. and those those two those two perspectives will probably uh, influence business opportunity, transaction potential, uh, in in almost every facet. And sometimes a lot of entrepreneurs get really frustrated. Like I, I, I we could we could spend a whole time talking about how do you get the most out of yourself mentally, emotionally, physically, spiritually, relationally. Right. How, how do you how do you get the most out of yourself every single day? And I'll be really honest. You've written you've read a few books that I've read. OK, there we go. <laughs> and, 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 and a lot of business owners will literally they will compound on top of themselves. Frustrations, annoyances may be valid, may not be valid distract themselves, drain things from themselves because they just don't realize this is the world you live in. You got to solve the cash problems, financial problems. You got to solve that. I've said this before. One of the things that I tell my team every day is make it easy on the people you want something from. So guess what? I need stuff from banks constantly Mm -hmm. because I'm working with banks. So rather than getting frustrated that they're not helping me, I want to, I want to deliver on a silver platter, everything that they need so they can make their decision. So they trust the, the land title, the, the information, the financial metrics, everything. I want to make it so easy for them that they say yes to my stuff. That is such a good statement in the word value that people don't understand. The people that are more prepared that come with actually, here's everything you got to do, and I'm making this decision easier for you because I'm already organized yes. and I already have the process down. I already know all the questions you're going to ask. And there's an art to that because sometimes you're getting into a black box. It's kind of like the entrepreneurship yep. where you just don't know what you're getting into. That that doesn't apply because you just don't know. And then there's the other side of it where you've created a mechanism and a machine that makes it so easy that you get less pushback and you're able to process things and true value is created from that because instead of processing one you can process three for the same value that you did it so your revenue actually increases your expansion how many clients friends associates have you sat had a drink with dinner whatever it may be and you'll hear the comment of like, I can't believe my bank's doing this and they're making me say this and that. Sometimes it's valid, right? Sometimes banks are just, their board of directors, their loan committees are looking at what the Fed's telling them and they're looking at their books, they're trying to balance it and they, they got to push back on some stuff. That, that's sometimes unavoidable. But more often than not, my experience has been, you didn't come prepared, you weren't organized, you didn't have clean books and they're looking at, you're going like, do I really want to make this loan? Cause it's, I'm kind of nervous. And then you see the other client, right? Who comes in prepared and guess what that bank and their loan committee wants to do. They're like, dude, let's do not just the loan for this guy. We want to do as many loans as possible because sure. he makes us look good. Our jobs are easier. I don't have to pull teeth trying to get information to make this loan work and just acceleration happens. 
And it benefits you, your family, your business. If again, I live in this, how do I make it as easy as possible for all the parties I'm dealing with to get what they need? Because ultimately it's going to deliver hopefully what I want. Isn't that a funny thing? Because you're actually service, serving other people and servicing other people. And it, it goes back to great parables inside of there. But I, I digress. Like yep. the more service you provide to other people, it's rewarded, right? right? Yep. Here's the funny thing, because you're saying something about banks. And we talked about this offline before we got on. The banking industry has been flipped on its head in the last 12 months. Oh, yeah. And so, I mean, we, we're looking at a lot of projects. We're doing some projects inside of there. And I go, man, some of the things that you have this mechanism that's worked a whole lot and it's been nice and simple and you've done it. And now they're all of a sudden, they changed the rules. They moved the goalpost. Yeah. And now it's like, hey, how do you find that happy medium? So I, I always encourage entrepreneurs when they do look at it like, hey, I have a lot of them coming to me right now going, I used to get this loan all the time. I used to be able yeah. to do this all the time. I used to be able to do this. And now the covenants are 10 times more. They want more collateral. They want more deposits down. Yep. They, they have all of these other criteria they didn't have 12 months ago. And I go, look, the banking industry is not in a good spot right now. And so they're not wanting to make more loans. They're wanting to make less. And they want top tier risk. They don't want that middle bucket. So in order for them to take risk, you have to be top tier yeah. from a credit standpoint, from a liquidity standpoint, also from a processing and servicing and making it easy and knowing that the reputation's there. So it, it, it's a difficult deal where I think you got to look at it for both ways on yep. there, it, it, but you're spot on, on if you come prepared, you make it simple and you service other people to make their job easier, you're going to get better yep. results. It, it's the whole control, what you can control. Yep. What you can't control, and there's a lot you can't control, right? Mm -hmm. uh, there's, I think, I, I was so fortunate that my first foray into the real estate world uh, as an agent, an investor, and so forth, is I was underneath uh, Greg Garrett, and he had a real estate arm that I was, I was kind of under, but he was also the president of a bank. So I kind of had the privilege, being a curious human being, to just constantly ask him the banking questions. I was like, so what do you all talk about loan committee? And what are you looking yeah. for? And what's happening? And I literally kind of got the curtain pulled back. And my little curiosity and my financial brain grasped early on in my, my career, what is it that bankers and loan committees are looking for? And then I, I even, he started telling me, he goes, well, what most people don't realize is we as a loan committee may look at a client project proposal and we love it. But we just had the auditors, the Fed auditors, the state auditors, the FDIC come into our bank. And literally, they'll look at our loan portfolio and they'll go, you guys are actually doing pretty good here. But guess what? You've got one borrower here who that loan and that LTV and that risk profile, it's perfect. But you know what? He's got lots of other loans at other banks. And because we don't like his profile, you know, globally... We're going to ding your profile, your portfolio, so we don't want you lending and we don't want you to fill up your bucket with more commercial industrial, ag loans, business loans, SBA loans, real estate loans, whatever whatever the restriction is. The Fed's coming to their team and going, you can't, you can't, you can't limit, restrict, restrict. And so guess what loan committee's now doing? Well, last week we had no problem with this guy. 
this week, we still have no problem with this borrower, this project, but the Fed is just hitting us hard. But they won't be honest about it. No, they will, you will that, never know that. You will never, you know, will that. never know that. They, th- and th- this is the biggest bitch I have against banks. Yep. And I, I've talked to a lot of lenders, a lot of bank presidents, a lot of deals. And this is the problem, like the magic curtain of back room BS <laughs> that you have. The magic curtain, you don't actually know. You don't actually know no. what's inside of a loan committee and how they do that. And so there, it is a real thing for for concentration limits inside of different sectors. And that is one thing everybody's got to wrap their head around yep, yep. is because you could have the perfect project, perfect, perfect business, but if they're, they're not doing CRE and they're not doing ground up construction and commercial real estate, they're not going to bank you no matter what, how good your project is. And so I always go to my guys and it's weird in my world. We're counseling more business owners to not stay at one bank. Yeah. We're yeah. counseling business Which is kind of opposite of what you were told for 15, yeah, 20 years. Build a banking relationship. Yeah, that's right. Build a banking relationship. Yeah. And I said, you build that banking relationship with one bank, you're just waiting to, for them to pull the, car, yeah. the rug out from under you. And then you have no recourse. And, and starting a new banking relationship is 10 times harder. Yeah. So go and get three banks day that's one. Exactly right. Put more so assets inside of each one of them to have auto loans with one right and give them a mix of everything inside there so if one doesn't have it here's the funny thing is and this is why you have bank i don't even know what their technical title is loan officers and all that stuff they're vice presidents they're all vice presidents <laughs> <laughs> and i got some good friends i've had some banks on here but they're all vice they're presidents. all vice presidents yeah yeah and so and but they come on in the relationship guys right yeah and they want you to bank 100 percent with them because if you bank 100% with them, they have complete control. When they have complete control... Like, oh, by the way, now, we were doing a 90% LTV, 80%. Now we're dropped down to 65 You need to plunk down more equity. And, and you're, quite frankly, screwed because yep. you don't have that other relationship to go to. Yeah, absolutely. Or rate was 625 now it's 650 and we're going to go ahead and change the rates. But it wasn't our fault. Fed, Fed raised rates, right? And I'm going, <laughs> that's funny. This bank over here said that they'll do the deal, right? So you took yourself out of a position where you put yourself in a corner yep. and you have no other recourse but to take a bad loan. I sat down with a client. This is the most absurd thing I've ever seen in my life. I, I've worked with banks for a long time. They came into a new CR, a new construction and they put a collar on it where it was two years construction loan for 8.75%. A five-year surrender. So if you refinance that loan in five years, it was a 5% takeout fee. So you couldn't take that loan out. But it's only a two-year two construction loan. That rolled into a 20-year loan of 8.75% with the collar on it, couldn't go less than 7.5%. Couldn't go less less than 7.5%. Even if prime drops to 3? That's the point. With another 7-year breakup fee inside of that one. So they literally locked you into a 9-year loan where no matter where rates were going to go, they were going to get 7.5%, right? But unlimited upside. So it wasn't even a collar. It was just a floor, excuse me. So it was just, if it went to 12, they got to reprice you every three years. But if it went down to four, four and a half, five, they're not going to reprice you, right? And and here's what all the banks say. Yeah, but we got a good relationship, and we're just going to go ahead and 
re- redo that outside the covenants, and we're going to price you down into what fair market value is. Cool. Go put it in the covenants. Go put it no. in the document. Yeah, that's right. They will never. I've never had a bank actually put it into the actual no. documents. No, exactly not. And so I, I love banks. You have to have banks. It's what made the world that it is today. Fractional banking. I'm not a huge fan of, but it is what speared our economy on for the it last is. fifty that's years. Right. right. So we have to play in that world, but you have to understand. Do not. My biggest advice: do not rest on one bank relationship. No. And, and I'll, I'll say one more thing on this little banking digression we did, and that is isn't that great? We we just went uh, off the it's rails. It's fun, but but I, I think again, what a lot of entrepreneurs, business owners, understand is when when you don't need to be an expert, but if you could just grasp a little more of the moving parts of this whole financial world, yeah, it, it'll just help better help position you to make decisions, be organized, and so forth. Something I stumbled into, I don't even really know I was stumbling into it, in this whole kind of curiosity world of, all right, uh, I'm a real estate agent, I'm putting together real estate deals, I'm an investor buying stuff, and now all of a sudden I'm participating as a lender, right? This little kind of idea of, okay, most of my bank activity had been the bank wanted was going to lend on a piece of real estate, which is, we'll call it a real estate bucket. It might be a commercial real estate bucket, you know, most often a residential real estate bucket. And you said earlier, a bank is allowed a certain concentration. They can't lend 100% of their yep. bank portfolio to residential real estate, right? Signature bank. Here's a prime example. 80% of Signature Bank in California was on the tech industry and yeah. the tech loans. What happened there? Yeah. So there's reasons why the banks can't do this, and it's justified the Fed put this in place. I'm not saying there is. Just be upfront with That's it. That's right. Why can now we not have a database? where we can look at what is your concentration of limits loans? what's it, your concentration of sba loans which you know etc exactly why cannot not be a transparent thing that is released by the public that the public can look at so they don't waste their time going into this bank that's my bitch about the federal government and the way that dodd frank is structured the way that everything is structured today is make it easy on the consumer yeah. so they don't waste their time they don't wake the waste the bank's time say hey i'm approaching eight my cons- weeks of underwriting with yeah. the bank until you find out oh oh sorry. we can't do this yeah. i just wasted yeah. eight weeks yeah. of your time well so, something that's that a great I just point. kind of I've- uh, mm. unknowingly uncovered is a, as a lender, right? So as a lender, I'm actually borrowing from the bank as a lender because what do banks do? Banks borrow from their Fed as a lender and they're yep. just playing the interest rate game. It's a and spread game. That's it, all it is. It's a spread game. And so what I started going to the banks with is I started saying, hey, I know you've got a certain limitation on residential real estate. You actually love that product, especially in Lubbock, Texas. You love lending on that product, but you have certain limitations. I'm coming to you as a lender, and I'm going to actually be the lender on real estate. So it's going to be on my portfolio, a real estate loan. And what I'm asking you to do is to leverage and loan against my real estate loan portfolio, which in their language is you're loaning me on commercial industrial paper notes, promissory notes, first mm-hmm. lien position notes. Sure. And so you effectively get to double dip. You get to loan against me. Mm-hmm. And it drops not into your real estate bucket; it drops into your CNI note bucket, which is a smaller bucket. You you so got room explain to what fill CNI that is. CNI is a commercial industrial bucket of loans. Okay, that uh, commercial loans could be you know could be commercial real estate, but often it's paper, like where a bank will loan against. Whenever I make a loan to someone, that's a first lien position. I draft up a deed of trust and a promissory note. Mm-hmm. And that's literally a piece of paper that gives me security that if my borrower defaults, I get the property back. Well, I take that piece of paper and let's just do simple math. Let's say it's a million dollars worth of loans and I've loaned it 75% LTV. So I've got $750,000 of loans that I've loaned my money out for. Well, if all I have in the bank to loan is $750,000 and I want to go loan more money, 
I go to my bank and I give them $750,000 worth of promissory notes, first lien positions, and I say, loan me 80, 85% of $750,000. I cannot believe you're getting that high. So I would figure 70, but but that's good. So it, let's unpack this for a second because you're, you're moving really, really quick here. And I want to make sure we yep, understand. Yep. Right. So what's LTV? LTV is loan to value. Okay. So as a private lender, I'm going to look at the value of that property. And if I think the value of that property is worth a million dollars, I may loan 75% of it as a private lender. Okay. So I'm going to loan $750,000 mm-hmm. against a property that I believe has appraised value or you know valuation value of a million. Sure. So I've got some 25% buffer, $250,000 of whoops. Yep. It's not worth a million. It's only worth $900,000. We can still pay off the seven hundred fifty thousand loan, and, and there's room there to go. And it's also for the simple fact that whoever's the lender is, is they need to pad there to pay their attorneys to actually get that property That's back right. and yep. go through all that. They're then spend ten to twenty percent typically yep. Yep. to actually get that property back and go through the court systems inside and of there. So LTV is one thing on there, and. Uh, there, you said another term. I try to define terms when I run into them on the. That's great. Yeah. Because it's sometimes you get guys. I always hate podcasts that you always get on. And you're like, well, this was interesting, but I have no clue what this they, guy they said did on this. Three different sets of initials that I had no clue what they were talking <laughs> yeah, about. Yeah. So yeah. It, it's good. And I think that's really good. LTV is one of those things that you use almost you do always use a lot. That's exactly right. inside the industry uh, or any industry right now. So it's, it's a really, really good deal. So go back to that. So you're going and you're giving, and first loan positions was the other one. So explain yep. what first loan position yep. is because so, that's the key yeah, on a legal that's, statement. That, that's exactly right. So uh, the first lien position, uh, you know, our, our, our laws have set up where the lender who loans on a, in this situation, a piece of real estate, if they, if they are the first uh, lender to file and record their loan in the county records office. Again, and that's a UCC that filing? Where- it, it's a UCC filing, but it's also just literally a county filing, your warranty, deed of trust, all of this legal documents that you sign at the closing table. They take it to the county. They file it, which means I'm making a public notice that I get paid first when this property is sold yeah. before anyone else gets paid. So I, I get the first bat at that. I'm, I'm the first person that gets paid back. Yep. And that's my protection again, because again, we want an economy and a set of rules that will incentivize the investment of risk capital. That's mm-hmm. what you want. And you want those rules to be enforceable and protectable so that my dollar or my hundred thousand or my million or the trillions of dollars that we want flooding through our, our, our economy we want those dollars to be protected in an enforceable way. So a first lien position is a, an incredible uh, governing rule, which has allowed our economy to put trillions of dollars into there because there's protection of lenders who will loan for your home, for your office, for your skyscraper, your apartment, whatever the piece of real estate may be. So that first lien position is an asset. It's the key. It's the key to everything. And so now I, I run into, because we, we do a lot of, and and we don't do it. We, we, we partner with a lot of companies and we don't advertise it. We, we just get forced into it. And it's a good thing. We talk to clients about it. But security back lines of credit and insurance back yeah. lines of credit yep. and all those things inside of there, it gives control. Yep. And and so I always talk to our investors and our clients that if you're a business owner and you've got assets, you've got real assets, the first thing you should do always is go get a security back line of credit. Yep. And 
why I I look at that because it gives me an emergency fund. Yeah. And I look at it from your CPA, put your CPA hat on. So if I got a million dollars worth of assets and I've set it there for five years, right? And now it's worth two million bucks. Do I want to sell those assets no. or do I want to take a, a loan against 100%. it? Why do you want to take a loan against it? What's because the problem I don't, I don't want the, with selling I don't want the, the capital assets? gain impact them and a half because I just got a $1 million capital gain and that $1 million capital gain is going to be eaten up by a massive amount of tax So you exposure. just lost 23.8% day one. Yep. Right. And then to, to regain that 23.8%, I got to make 50% on that return. Absolutely. So I just, the, the, the loss of, of earning power and, you know, interest rate is just eroded. And so whenever you take a loan out, is it taxable? No, that's the beauty of it. it Tax-free. It, it's tax-free 100% of the time. So it, it's changing people's mindset to understand that. And business owners don't get that. And so I get frustrated with business owners when they're like, oh, I got cash here and I'll just go sell this and I'll just actually go do it. And I'm like, there's fractional banking that literally created the yeah. last 50 years yeah. of the expansion of the United States. Create your own fractional yeah, that's banking. Right. That's right. Right. And so all you have to do is look at the spread on one, what's the risk? And two, what is that spread? So if I can actually go, and this is the one that frustrates me the most is, and, 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 and it's to, to each his own. I'm saying there's not a right way or wrong way. And I'm yep. not giving advice here. I got a preference that, right? But if you have a half a million dollar house or a million dollar house and you turn around and you have a three, four, five hundred thousand dollar mortgage on that house and they want to take their assets and sell them to pay off their home, stop doing that. Yeah. Right. It's it's just not a smart idea. Here's why it's not a smart idea in my mind. Right. And I'm saying to each his own, like some people can't put their head down on the pillow because they absolutely want no debt. Right. And no debt is a great thing to have. I look at debt from two different perspectives. One is if you have debt and you can't pay back the debt, that is bad debt. That's right. Yep. Right. If I have assets, liquid assets or assets to pay off this other debt and the bank pisses me off. Cool. I'll sign that check and I'll take you out, right? That is good debt to have. And so if you have liquid assets over here that are pouring off free cash flow, and that free cash flow is covering the interest payment plus the principal, and you get a spread. So if I'm making a 7% return yeah. in my assets, and it's costing me 4.5% for this note over here, I'm making a 3%, 3.5%, whatever the math yeah. is on that, spread against that, right? There's an arbitrage there that is very powerful on, I'm making money on owning the debt. Yep. And a lot of people can't wrap their head around this. And I get business owners like, hey, I'm trying to pay down my debt quick in my business, quick in my business. Well, what you're doing is you're paying down all the debt, but you're not keeping any reserves. Yep. So you're one week, one month, one year away from unwinding progress because you won't have liquidity when something hits yep. the fan, yep, right? right? And now you were relying on the bank to go back to them and go, hey, bank, 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 I spent all my money trying to pay you down. Now I have to leverage back up again because I have no liquidity. And so I think that there's a, and we call this a standard of liquidity in our business. And yep. it's very important. A standard of liquidity allows you to control your assets instead of your assets controlling you instead of a bank controlling you. But I digress. The opinions voiced in this podcast are for general information only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual. To determine which strategies or investments may be suitable for you, consult the appropriate qualified professional prior to making a decision. This is a good conversation. Yep. I love this. I think it was really, really educational. I want to shift gears with you one yep. second. So 
real estate, title company, all that stuff. That's great. And I think it was very educational. You got into something new. Yeah. You did. And it's pretty cool, to be honest with you. I looked at this in a lot of different ways from the solar side, also from we came this close from putting together a $50 million solar farm, wind farm, crypto mining facility. Yep. I'm, I'm, but what you did is went the other direction with it. So I'd love to tell the story, but and I, we didn't, we, we're going to have to push this back into the front of the podcast. Explain your pedigree and ex, not your pedigree, but your CV explain it because you, you are a CPA by trade, right? Yep, yep. So, so unwind for a second. Cause we, we got just jumped in and say, you know, what's your background a little bit? Where'd yep. you go to college? Some yeah. So like I, that. I, um, I went to school in Tulsa, Oklahoma or, or Roberts university and got in a, had an incredible accounting professor came to me at the end of my freshman year. And he's like, Hey, you're really good at accounting. Why don't you uh, move from management, marketing, whatever I was into accounting and get an accounting degree. And I was like, well, uh, I think you nailed it. I don't want to be an accountant. <laughs> and he said, no, I get it. And, and he, he said something and you know, I, we look at these moments in life where you 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 intersect with someone and conversations and some wisdom is dropped that just has massive changes for you. And this is literally Mr. Put you Mr. on a different Mr. road. Mr. Ray Gregg looked at me and he said, Josh, did you know that most people who get into accounting degree get their CPA? Most of them, not all of them, most of them run businesses, start businesses at the top of the business ladder, but they they have a foundational knowledge of accounting and finance. And it it literally unlocked a light bulb in my brain of like, so I don't, I'm not pigeonholed. Mm-hmm. into sitting behind a desk and being an accountant. Right. But the knowledge base, you know, and so I switched and got my accounting degree, one of the best decisions ever to did, got my CPA. And so that just, you know, Did you ever up. practice? I always wondered this. Yeah, I did. I worked with some CPA firms a little bit on the tax side of things. Um, I had, uh, I, I thought I was going to take a job with one of the big six, big five accounting firms, Ernst & Young, right out of college. Yeah, he and there was a big software company in Tulsa where the president called me up. I, I knew him because he was an alumni of a university. And they were a software company that serviced the accounting tax industries. So they, they hired a lot of business students, accounting majors. And he just said, Josh, you're my number one draft pick. He mm. goes, what will it take to get you to come to our software company? And it was, again, another one of those really interesting things. I really thought I was going to go full-time in the accounting industry. I got to take the knowledge of accounting and tax and so forth and apply it into really what's more of my skill. My skill set is, is relationship, problem-solving, sales, presentation stuff. And in the software world, I got to flourish in those gifts while tapping into the knowledge base, which is I got to communicate at, at, a, at a credible level to CPAs, tax attorneys, you know, uh, enrolled agents and so forth. So that was another one of those. I didn't think my path would take me down there. And, uh, and it did. It's funny. You hit on so many things I want to hit, hit on this. One is you're not the typical CPA. Right. No, no. Typical CPA is very introverted. They're very, hey, I'm going to crunch numbers. I'm going to stay be- back behind it. And there's then there, you are definitely the entrepreneur side that has the knowledge of the CPA, which is very, very rare. Yeah. Because you can actually articulate and understand deep financial and mathematical knowledge yeah. and tax law and everything that goes into it. But you're very outgoing and you're very articulate on being able to communicate that. It's very, very rare. And so I I, I told this to uh, Dr. Starr, which is, I don't know, do you know Brian Starr? I don't. No. You don't know Brian? He, he's been on a podcast here. So Brian's our, our chief economist at our firm. And uh, he was the econ- uh, 
taught economics at Lubbock Christian University. Now he's yeah. a provost at Oklahoma Christian. A great man. Just an absolutely great man. I enjoy him. He's funny. He's awesome. He's very, very smart. But he said, Brendan, you know, th- there's a finite amount of people in the world that can talk at this level and talk at this level do this job and do this job. Take this risk and mitigate this risk. And when you can hit all three of those things, yep. it's pretty special inside of there. Most people don't like taking risk. They don't like selling themselves. They don't like unpacking and providing a service or servicing other people above themselves. And so there's a lot of things that you have to look for. And I think you're, uh, you know, just talking with you today is just the epitome of yep. what a good entrepreneur should be. So I commend you and what you're doing. But dive into so you went into accounting then you went into real estate yeah i kind of shifted from uh i was with the software company uh traveling around the country doing you know sales software support and um a high school one of our college buddies who kind of ran an investment club said hey let's take our little you know tiny investment club thing uh, that's really more than an investment club and let's kind of let's roll the dice and kind of start a little hedge fund manage money for some clients so that was a a really interesting journey and uh, that's kind of has a whole nother story to it now you got to unpack that one so did you go were you a registered investment advisor at that point in time were you an we, ra we kind of we lived in a few different worlds we were an R, R, ra for a short period of time but because we were really just trading commodities we were kind of in the uh, the nfa side of the world yeah and so we, you know, traded on the Chicago Mercantile Exchange mostly for the products that we were trading. And um, I, I really didn't live in the trading world. I was more of the back office client relations. And you know, we were just a couple of 20-somethings, kind of dumb, ignorant kids that were just like, hey, let's go try this thing out. We got some friends and family that threw some money at us. And um, it was it was a really interesting journey. I, I started reading about real estate, and I really wanted to learn about real estate a lot. And so... As that shifted and evolved, and you know, maybe another time we'll kind of tell that whole story. I really wanted to get into real estate just because uh, I was reading Robert Kiyosaki's book, Real Estate Riches. And he said, if you find yourself driving down the road and you're just looking at everything around you from a real estate standpoint, going, I wonder what you could do the year and I wonder what the numbers are there. He said, that's a good indication that you should put more time and energy into real estate. And that whole idea is like, that's me everywhere I go. I can't just, I just go crazy over what real estate, but I didn't have a foundational knowledge of what is the value of real estate, right? Cause mm-hmm. any, if you're going to invest in anything, you got to understand what's the value of a Facebook stock, Apple stock or gold or Bitcoin or a piece of real, you have to understand the, the fundamental value of an asset so that you can then decide, do I want to invest in that? Do I want to encourage someone else to invest in that? Do I want to advise someone to put their risk into that? And so that's where I wanted to jump from. It's just literally the bottom floor of how do you know the value of something, specifically real estate? And that just began to open up a whole you know, doorway of all these other businesses that touch real estate, insurance, and um, you know, title, and lending, and energy, which is kind of where the, the last, the most recent world of... Um, yeah, you're shifting into it. You, you open the door, you might as well jump into yep. it because I think this is the most interesting deal. But I want you to lay the frown uh, the foundation for this. So what happened to West Texas over the last year? Can you explain that? Because Yeah, so it's it's been interesting. It's been it's been building for several years. And I'll give a lot of credit to my partner in Rise Energy, which is kind of the business that we started several years ago. Um, my partner had lived for many years in Austin, Texas. He's a Lubbock native moved his family when he was young to Austin, Texas. And so he lived in a deregulated ERCOT world 
where his energy bills were really high as a dad and, you know, family of six kids, you know, six people, four kids. Um, and he discovered you could shop for your energy. That's, that's kind of as a young adult and as a young family, that's all he knew. He was educated on, you can literally every three months, six months, 12 months, go shop just like you would for car insurance. Like we, we kind of understand our insurance agent may just renew us, but effectively you can go shop sure. for your auto insurance, mm-hmm. for your homeowner's insurance. A now, good insurance agent should do they that. They should do that for you. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and hopefully many of them are, some are better than others and so forth. And so what has happened in, in our Lubbock backyard is the first time in the history of Texas. So probably around 2000, the state of Texas shifted into basically a deregulated market, right? Without getting too complicated, um, the majority of the population, so Dallas, Fort Worth, Houston, Austin, San Antonio, and most of the Texas population grids outside of really West Texas, El Paso, and a couple of literal counties in East Texas. So most of, I think, 90 six percent of the population is uh in 2000 shifted into a deregulated world which basically means rather than just one monopolized utility which is today it's lpnl or if you live south of town you only have one company to choose from you can't shop your energy if you're south plains electric co-op now spec is a great company i think they do a great job so you don't have the desire or need you don't have pain sure to go shopping for energy i have pain right now with them right now but that's a different, uh, it's a different story yeah so when the ERCOT market was created, it was a market mechanism around energy, which in theory, right or wrong, good or bad, was let's give consumers the freedom of choice. And by giving them the freedom of choice, hopefully we'll incentivize the energy producers to, like like any capitalistic business, produce a better quality product at a lower cost. Sure. All right. That's the idea. Now, that doesn't always translate. There's a lot of other forces that'll cause that not to be the case. And so we've lived in a world in Lubbock where we are a city-owned municipal. So the city of Lubbock owns the power, owns the lines, goes out and buys energy contracts, because that's how energy works, is you got to go out and buy 10, 20, 30-year energy contracts. you got to go buy natural gas products, and it's mm-hmm. really complicated but you got to go ensure that I have access to energy resources, wind resources, natural gas resources, coal resources, wherever they may be. And so the city of Lubbock, like a lot of other uh, municipalities, has been managing it themselves. And I'll just be honest, that's not easy to do. No, that that's definitely because you're playing in such a huge world of most complex things out Absolutely. there. Absolutely. Energy is one of the most complex yeah, things out yeah. there because you, you have distribution of energy. You have creation of energy, right? You, you have energy. The last mile of energy, which is yeah, the most weather ex- impacts uh, on energy. weather risk. I mean, it's crazy. So I do give credit to the city of Lubbock and what they've done. It wasn't always like that, though. And you understand. And I just want to get this on the record is more than anything is 30 years ago. We had more than one choice at LPL. And then the, our city officials voted to put LPL as a monopoly. Yeah, yeah. That's where I think we did a disservice to the local community. Yep. And, and I don't and think they took I think they were blindsided. I don't think they had the vision of what this thing was going to grow to. And and you know, there there is again, I think you, you always SBC have, was in Lubbock at that point in time. Yeah. There was what was the other one? There was three. And I forgot and they got bought out, but they sold all of their Excel was it Excel? Well, Excel, you know, has the the north part of the the city, you know, the, this county of Lubbock. They're not in really Lubbock much, but Excel is a uh, actually a, an investor-owned, publicly traded mm-hmm. uh, utility company, and they're based. Yeah, in Yeah, but they're more natural gas, and so I got some 
pretty high yep. ups yep. clients that are inside of there. But and, and, and so what, what's but they all is, consolidated down. That's right. And now we said, hey, we're going to have open yeah, and, energy. And, and, and I but think it's, guess who owns the infrastructure? Yeah. Well, LPL someone has does. to own it. Yeah, LPL yeah. because they've invested. Well, let's let's face it. They've invested tens and probably hundreds of millions of dollars, right? Of taxpayer dollars, but they've invested those dollars into hard assets that allows energy to go from, you know, the, the, the natural gas plant, the coal plant, the water plant, wherever that may, wherever the to energy your house to your house. Yeah. Right. And that's, that's an investment and that's a risk that deserves to get paid back something. What that is, I don't know, but it deserves to get paid back something. Well, and it's so apparently six cents it's, per it's, kilowatt. It's a lot. It's a lot more than the rest of the state's paying, sadly. I mean, that's one byproduct of this whole change yeah. is that. It, it, am I wrong in that? From what I understand, what I've read, it's six cents is what their wholesale costs back to the rest of six to eight, depending. I didn't know that. I thought yeah. it was six. Yeah. It, it, it's no one really knows what that final cost is going to be. Like as we're pricing out energy it's right funny now. Funny how that's not transparent. And, and Isn't even, that a common denominator? Even, even the reliance of the world and the NRGs of the world and the big energy providers that are actually you know, writing these energy contracts, they can tell you what their commoditized cost of energy is to the customer, which is part of your bill. Part of your bill is literally what's the actual cost of the coal, gas, solar, wind, or whatever mixture of energy is coming from. That's half of your bill, sometimes less than half. The other half of the bill is the cost to transmit it. And then all of these other kind of baked in fees that sometimes congestion and other things that quite frankly will just you have no clue how it's priced into it. Mm. And it used to be that most of your cost of energy was just literally the commodity cost. But now the, the pricing of energy is almost flipped. Or if you look at someone's bill, 40 to 50 percent. Less than half is the actual we'll call the commodity energy cost. Natural gas moving from the natural gas well through the, the distri pipelines. Distribution costs. Yep. Um, Infrastructure costs, employee costs of maintenance. Yep, and yep. And so I, I think what, what happened is several years ago, LPNL looked at the future landscape and they saw, I think, several things. That well, were I thought they were favor. maxed out, too. A combination oh. of, you know, they, they made some some energy bets like every every company has to do. And sometimes those work out in your favor. And sometimes the bet don't work out in your favor. And someone has to pay the bill. Who who is the person that will always end up paying the bill when it comes the to the consumer does? The, the consumer, consumer does. does. Yeah. So if and again, I'm not trying to say anyone's bad here. I'm just saying, do when, you think we have proper analytics inside of there to make that decision? Like I can't call up, and I know a lot of politicians. I've had some on there. I don't call up and say, "Hey, hand me over to the CFA." For the city of Lubbock on analyzing what the risk parameters are inside of this and what the yep, opportunity. Yep. That's the problem I have with municipalities and way that it is. This is like they don't have the best information. Yep. They don't know how to process well, data. And there's other forces influencing the decision too. Yeah, they're, they're not always an accounting metric market force decision making. No, they're there's, they're in there like I'm political. gonna hire. A, a, consultant i'm gonna get some political pull i'm gonna get some kickback somehow some way but i get it but i digress yep right so go back into and finish your story yeah so i, th I think effectively the decision making was one of two things let's just make it really dumb and simple and that is either the city of lubbock and lpnl continues on its path and we will have to bill our customers our constituents those voting for us at a much higher rate or we slide into the background we open up and say, hey, you now get the power to choose, and the power to choose could be really great for everybody, and someone else will be the the billing invoice. It's no longer City of Lubbock or LPNL. Someone else will be the one that will send you a bill that is higher. And so you kind of 
kick the can a little bit. You kind of move from being the bad guy face to now all of a sudden you can kind of shift that to someone else and they're carrying the cost uh, while you're still kind of, you know, you're still kind of recouping what you're going to recoup to cover the lines and pay for the transmission and so on and so forth. So I think that decision was made to go, I think we need to move that route. And so what happened first time in the history of Texas is that a municipally owned uh, utility, which is Lubbock, voluntarily chose to basically... We want to join the ERCOT market. And, and there are some good reasons for doing that, too. We now have access to all of the power that the greater ERCOT market has. Now, that was that sounded great, and, and it still, in theory, is great. There was a little problem that no one could foresee, and that was a, a winter storm called Yuri, mm-hmm. in which ERCOT went from being this great force to, I, I use this phrase of, ERCOT now is kind of a four-letter word. It is. In the mind of a lot of people. Yeah. So they went from being ERCOT's this great savior to now the psychology of consumers all over the state is ERCOT's a four-letter word. Why are we joining them? So it kind of bit you in the butt. It did. And they they made that vote. They ratified it right at the time when that problem hit. Yeah. I mean, it was within months, if I recall right. And I could be off on that, but it it was in months of happening. And here's the recourse. So from what we look back at our bills, the average energy cost for Lubbock was 12 to 13 cents. It was when I started our energy company, we were pricing or not pricing. We were seeing things in the nine to 10 cent range, right? So literally but all in cost, there's 6% all in cost. Even nine, all in was nine, nine to 10 no. cents. Yeah. We're talking 2020, 2019, all in cost were eight, nine, 10 cents for customers. Really? Eight, now nine, it's 10 16 plus 16 yeah, to plus. 18. Yeah. So, and I want to unpack so much of this, but at one point in time, this is where I think a cryptocurrency and crypto, and and it's not crypto, what's the underlying? uh, A Bitcoin blockchain. Blockchain. When when is blockchain actually going to replace this? When is it going to be like, I'm going to do a development. I'm going to build 250 homes. I'm going to put a park in the middle of it. I'm going to do a whole lot of solar panels. I'm going to do some so wind on the outside. what you're describing is, is, is what I Fractional really, energy and, by the subdevelopment. So um, this, this, this is the reason why I got into this business. Yeah, I want to join you if you're doing that. Yep. So this is, again, and I'm, I'm just going to say one of the things that uh, on a daily basis, like literally every morning, early in the morning, before the world gets chaotic and crazy and tugging and pulling at you, I, I have to quiet my world uh, because I need it personally, spiritually, et cetera. And I just, one of the things I just desperately cry out for is I need wisdom, I need discernment, I need creativity to see the world differently than what the world tries to tell me to look at it. And so when I sat down and someone said, oh, you need to meet this guy and he's going to talk to you about something, I was like, okay, I'm curious, I'll sit down with anyone and just listen. And as he told me about solar for the residential rooftop, because that was kind of the narrow, narrow focus of, of what the world he'd lived in. Um, and he had, you know, been a part of kind of the starting of the solar industry in Austin with Solar City and Tesla Energy and Elon Musk and so forth. So a lot, a lot of experience in that realm. I had zero interest in it. And the main reason was because I was like, I penciled the numbers on my rooftop. I'm paying eight, nine, 10 cents for energy. The cost of solar is more than that. I, I that's not benefiting me. Yeah. But it takes too long to get your ROI back. But, but sitting in that meeting, I, I just, I literally, I just heard God whisper to me, pay attention. There's more here. And, and I now know, fast forwarding it, there's more here than you realize. And and where that little statement, which it kind of unlocked a little bit of curiosity for me, is that energy, and I'm going to kind of compare it to what we love here in West Texas, and that is if 
if there were no environmental concerns and there weren't any messy cleanups, but you could turn on a spigot of oil and gas in your backyard. And anytime those oil and gas prices were attractive enough, you just turn that spigot on and you shot that oil and gas off to the market and you got a check 30 days later. Who, who would not want that little spigot of revenue coming out of you? Sure. All right. That's all that the sunlight and energy is, is that it is an asset and it is a commodity and the marketplace puts a value on that asset. And where my brain got unlocked around this, then I'll dig into what you're talking about is what if we, rather than for a hundred years, we relied upon monopolistic utilities, which to their credit had to invest tens of millions, hundreds of millions and billions of dollars of infrastructure, and then to go out and drill and build power plants and natural gas and, you know, nuclear and whatever it may be. They had to spend a lot of money so that we could have energy at our household, flip on the light switch and write the check. Mm -hmm. Well, it has gotten so expensive and oftentimes the reliability of energy, let's be honest. In Lubbock, I, I have rarely had a blackout, I just thankfully. But in other parts of the state, the reliability of energy, you, you go down to Houston, they're getting blackouts constantly. A storm comes in, knocks out power. So there's two forces. Isn't that, that funny in the last 10 years how much that's – there's an entire industry now on put your own propane yes. in, in your house. Put your own solar battery packs in your house. That is now becoming a industry standard in and, our, our, our and, and Rise Energy space. wants to be at the front of that space. And so where, where I saw opportunity as an entrepreneur, entrepreneur, as I said, holy cow, every single person, like literally, my businesses touch a certain niche of customers and real estate and lending and title and some insurance and investments. But honestly, it's a pretty small fraction of what, let's just say, humanity out there, but every single human being at some point or level touches energy, needs energy, has energy dependency. And so they're a potential customer for this future world of energy that I think we're walking into. And so where my brain as an opportunity looked at it is said, what if we had access to the knowledge, the financing, the solutions, the assets, the technology to be an alternative energy solution provider when and how that may be needed. And for every customer, that may look different. Today, that predominantly looks like a homeowner because that's that's primarily where this asset has played itself out, is a homeowner is either tired of the increase in costs, and so it's very similar to the analysis of why do you buy a house? Well, it gives you some security, but you're also locking in uh, you know, financial cost of real estate. Sure. If you'd bought your real house 15 years ago, you would have had a lower cost of living than you would have today. Energy is the same thing. You know, if, if you would, if you had the ability when you were in high school to lock in a gasoline contract that would literally be fixed for the next 30 years of your life, and your cost of gasoline when you were in high school was how much? Oh, 80 cents, 90 right. cents. So what if I could have told you when you were in high school, I'm going to put you into a contract and you're going to own your gasoline rights for the next 30 years, and it's not going to cost you 85 cents, but I can get you in it for $1.10, but it's fixed for the next 30. Would that have been a good decision? It definitely would. It, it definitely would, but there's nuances to that. Sure. So it's not an absolute, right? Yep. So I don't want to come and say solar is the absolute here and let's go do that. I think with the product that you're putting out on the part, and i got to be Gnostic. i got to do this. Yeah, I think course. it's a good yep. product, right? And so uh, the problem that you have into it is it doesn't – it's not available to everybody because there is a cost to going into it yep. and there's a risk to going yep. into it. And so 
is the technology actually going to last 20 to 30 years? So that's been, I think, again, like lots of other technologies, right? You know, uh, is it reasonable 10 to 15 it. or 20? And well, so here's what's is actually it an absolute. The manufacturers of, we'll say, the, the plain Jane boring photovoltaic solar panel, the manufacturers themselves are issuing now. They used to be 15-year warranties. Now they're 30. They're 25 to 30 years. Yeah. And what's the reason? It's because they're now, they've got, these, these assets will produce power for 30 plus years. Now there's a degradation factor mm -hmm. where it goes down by half percent a year on average. So at, at year 20, it's producing 90% of the power it was on, on day one. But guess what? Guess how much the cost of energy is going to be 20 years from now? Twice or three times. And what you're getting into is let's unpack that. Is the cost in, uh, the cost of energy actually going up or is it inflation? Um, I think both forces are hitting it, right? See, uh, this is why I have a conversation with people and I go, look, when you take out debt, you're taking out debt today. Yeah. But what's that debt valued at 10 years from now? What's yeah. that debt? You take the rule of 72, that debt's going to be cut in half because there's actually the dollar is weakening. So the dollars you have to put towards yeah. that debt is less. Yeah. I think that same theory applies to what you're doing here yeah. because that cost, that that debt structure that you're putting in place for 20 or 30 years is actually going to degrade over time because the dollar's weakening so much inside of inflation that if you're paying a dollar ten, dollar twenty, whatever your math is, yep. let's just say a dollar, right? And you're locking that in for twenty years. Are you seriously locking that in for twenty years? Yeah. It's only worth fifty cents on year twenty. Year ten, it's worth seventy five cents. Well, I guess what you're saying is it depends on how you pay for that asset, right? So if you if you paid all your cash today for an asset that's going to produce energy for again, we'll say you know thirty years, whatever that whatever that number may be. Um, the analysis that I, I look at is I go, okay, if I had to write a check for that energy this year and next year and year five and year 10 and year 20 and year 30, right? What, what is, what's, how much am I'm writing a check to someone I'm paying for the energy to someone. So what is that? In to today's dollars. That's right. What, what's my estimated cost of that energy over that, the life of that asset. And, you know, I, I've kind of told people my dumb math is, I want to get at least a 3x return on the cost I spend today versus what I'm going to save and what I don't have to spend for that energy commodity over the next 25 plus years. When you say it's a 3x, is that is that a free cash flow discounted so 3x? Let's, let's just do real quick numbers. All right. So let's okay. just say, let's say that, uh, you know, again, there's two different worlds here, and I do want the listeners to hear this, and that is, most of the solar perspective has been on a residential homeowner rooftop. Okay. And, and I do think, quite frankly, there's value there. I'll be honest, that is much less attractive in my mind as a business owner than where I think the real value is on any, any other type of asset. On, when I mean you've got a homeowner and then you've got every other asset, which means your rooftop right here. We could talk about it. As a business, commercial, or you, you talked about, rather than going out in a new development, you create what's called a microgrid. What's a microgrid? is literally behind the meter, right? So I got a meter feeding me power, but behind that meter is my asset, is my property. I put up solar, battery, generator, wind farm, whatever energy assets and I want. And you do it from a community. Sustaining, sustaining. Uh, yeah. And then I take advantage of all of these massive tax incentives that the government is flooding our economy, right or wrong, good or bad, they're there. I get a mortgage tax credit or mortgage tax deduction, I take advantage of it. When I give to my charity, I take advantage of it. Whether I believe in that law or not, I don't care. That's the law, I'm going to take advantage of it. Sure. 
And so the energy world has all of these incentives. And so on the commercial side, th this is the world that is that honestly, as a business owner, especially in Texas, there, I think we are in the first inning of what I'm saying is an energy transformation where now all of a sudden, rather than being held hostage, and I have no choices on the energy providers, the cost of energy, the reliability of energy, the increasing exposure I have on it. Now, all of a sudden, there are assets, technologies, and market forces in the ERCOT world where I can be my own energy provider. I can actually, like I'd open up the spigot and send oil and gas into the market, get paid for it. I can take those energy electrons, because that's all energy is. It's an electron. And the you know, you go read the news in the summertime and in the winter, and ERCOT's like, uh, would you cut back on your power? Would you please uh, turn your ACs down? I mean, all of these kind of, what they're trying to do is they're trying to incentivize the marketplace to create more energy. Why? Because the cost of that energy on those days, on those weeks, on those months are worth a lot more. Well, what happens if I own the energy? What happens if I own the solar, the battery, the generator assets that produces the energy, and I want to participate or sell just like I would stock, real estate, oil, and gas? Now, all of a sudden, I've created my own energy stability, my own energy reliability. And when the market forces says that energy is worth a lot more, I'm going to sell that energy. But yeah, but did you do you honestly get to participate in that structure? Because from what I understand, you're getting a substantial discount. So there's 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 a few different market uh, rules, or we'll say a market um, programs that you can sign up for. And now that Lubbock is connected into, we'll say if you're an LPNL customer, you're connected into ERCOT, we're eligible to participate in a few of these programs. And the way that the programs work is probably one of two different things. One program is called Demand Response. Demand Response has been around for a while, but what Demand Response basically says is when, uh, and, and a Bitcoin facility is probably the best example of this because you can kind of visualize this, and this is why Bitcoin facilities are setting up shop in Texas, and you've probably seen these numbers. And that Well, is, we talked about doing our, one our own. That's right. So, yeah. you know, when a, when a need for energy or a demand need is needed or a response to demand is needed. They shut down and they give that energy back. That's exactly back. right. They give yep. that energy back and they get paid mm -hmm. for the energy that they're not actually pulling into their facility sure. right they and, and you can get paid pretty handsomely for that yeah depending on the cost of bitcoin it's actually substantially higher than yeah, the cost of bitcoin the, the the other the other um you know to to really dumb it down the other way is that literally if i have um solar and battery assets and you know solar is going to produce energy and it's going to lessen the amount of energy i need to buy through the meter right um and then if i store some energy in a battery I can discharge that energy either into my facility or I can discharge that energy into the actual grid and get paid Ooh. for that energy. I, so you, you just opened up something that I hadn't put a perspective on and I hadn't thought through. Are, are they doing that now? Oh, absolutely. Uh, so mass, I, the, I the, did not know the you were battery, actually discharging your, your, the your batteries battery back world, into the grid. I, I've told people, I think one of the greatest impacts in the next 10 plus years and technology is the is the improvement and the technologies of batteries. And that's across the whole landscape, you yeah, know, from your is. cell phone battery, your computer battery, your car battery, to your utility scale battery, to the battery you put on your house, your business, your office. The thing I love about battery is it's just a commoditized asset that I get to manipulate depending upon market forces, market prices, market timing. I can use it for my own need or I can discharge it back into the grid, get paid for it. And so... All of that requires, and again, this is where Rise Energy and Josh Allen gets interested, 
is knowledgeable of the marketplace to be able to go to a client and go, how do we maximize the next five, 10 years of your business, your operations, your future, your development? Because energy, whether you like it or not, you got you to play the energy game. Mm-hmm. How do we play it? And, and again, in West Texas, love going, how do we stick it to the man so that you're the one controlling the reliability of it, the monetization of it? You get to take advantage of all the tax benefits to it, the depreciation benefits that can come from it, the potential. I've kind of said this. We're now entering into a world where a lot of businesses, all right, I've modeled this out for a lot of businesses where normally on your income and expense statement is a line item called utility, electric, whatever cost you want to call it. That's an expense category. You can't avoid it. You got to pay it. What if I could lessen that figure on your expense. So if I shrink an expense item, all of a sudden your income's higher. Yeah, your expenses and your margins go up. And then well, what if I actually added in a revenue item that had electricity reimbursement? So now I've got revenue on my income side, a smaller expense on my side. Now I've improved your bottom line and your EBITDA factor. What's the, what's the EBITDA number now? If you're at a six EBITDA, eight EBITDA, 10 EBITDA, whatever your EBITDA number is. What does that do to the valuation of your business? If you're in a real estate world and you're priced based upon cap rate analysis, right? What if the net operating income of your development, because you shrunk energy costs, maybe you added energy revenue, and I take that on a, on a six cap basis. So now I can go value your asset because when an investor comes to look at your shopping center, your office building, your apartment complex, your rental property, they're going to look at you based upon the income. So one of the things is I'm now putting solar on all of my rental properties. And this is a really dumb but simple illustration, right? Here's, here's the, and I like kind of brought some numbers here, but here's the illustration. My tenant is writing a check for electricity every single month. Mm-hmm. They're paying anywhere from $100 to $300 a month for electricity, just depending, right? Somewhere in sure. that range. We'll, we'll just call it $150. We'll say $150 a month for energy. I think you're being gracious, but yes. Let's All right, go we'll there. say 200 months. 200. I think that's reasonable. So I go to my tenant who, quite frankly, most people do not like the volatile nature of their electric bills, you know, especially if you want on some Yeah, they can't plan budget. for it. So I go to my tenant and I say, here's the deal. You no longer have to pay your electric bill. I'm putting solar up on the rooftop and you're going to pay me for the electricity. So I, you showed me your bill. I kind of, you're paying on average 200 and some months it's higher, some months it's lower. How about you pay me 220 a month fixed? 225 a month. Your rent's $1,000 a month. Now you're just going to pay me an extra two twenty-five, dollars but you no longer have an electric bill. Is that agreeable to you? Oh, I'd love it. Okay, I'm going to write the lease up. You owe me two twenty-five dollars a month. Now I'm going to put a limit on the energy, right? So if you put a Bitcoin rig in your back bedroom and you're blowing out the energy use and it goes above this predetermined threshold, you got to reimburse me just like the energy company would. But as long as you are a, a nominal energy user and you stay within this range, you're going to pay me two twenty-five dollars a month. All right, so now analysis how much is that energy solar costing me as the owner of the real estate? Because I already own the real estate. Why don't I own the solar asset? You, you pretty much created an energy arbitrage between the actual energy 100%. companies between what you're doing. So and I you're put, creating the spread between So them. I put solar on my rooftop. And for me, that cost may be, you know, I'll just, I'll, I'll say, you know, 16, 18, 19, 20,000, depending on the size of the property. I'm going to leverage it, you know, with cheap debt. And so that's going to cost me on a debt service over 20 years, that solar that didn't cost me any money out of pocket cost me $80 a month on debt service, right? So $80 a month is what's coming out of my pocket. She's paying me $225 a month. I've got to pay a meter fee, so that's an extra 30 bucks. So let's say I'm all in it for about $105 a month. I've just created an extra net operating income. Let's just make an easy number, $100 a month. $100, yeah. So that's $1,200 a year. So let's put that on just a different cap rate analysis. 
and let's say that let's just let's say a six and a half cap. So an extra twelve hundred divided by a six and a half cap. I've created eighteen thousand four hundred dollars of value. All right. Now, what did that solar really actually cost? That's me? what I was fixing to yeah, ask. So let's get into that. Solar actually cost me um, seventeen thousand dollars. All right. So on here, it looks like it's a break even. But oh, wait a minute. The government just gave me a 30 percent tax credit. So really, that 17,000 just dropped down to um, 17 12. times 0.3. You know, that's five thousand dollars I got back. Yeah. I don't have to pay taxes of five thousand. Oh, guess what else there is there? I can if I want. And this gets into a CPA kind of analysis. I can accelerate the depreciation. I can I can depreciate eighty five percent of the assets. So asset. you're using one seventy nine depreciation to actually accelerate that. The IRS allows me to depreciate it over five years, but the bonus depreciation rules yep. right now can allow me to take that eighty five percent of the asset and push and it put into it in the one, first one or two you, years. Yeah, yeah. So what that basically means is time value of money. You live in this world. I do. The time value of money that I just accelerated back into my pocket is on average 50 to 55% of that $17,000 solar cost. I get back in my pocket. And as an investor, what do I do with that money? Reinvesting is something else that's actually making more so it, I, I create it's perpetual. There's, there's no, it, it's insane. So what you're doing. I created a hundred. Who owns the asset? I do. So you own the actual solar panels. Yep. So how did you, because now we're going back to the title industry. Yep. How do so you have a the lien solar against loan that? is not a real estate lien that you gets don't have recorded. A, it's, it's a not, UCC lien, which is a totally separate lien than the first lien that the bank will file on the real estate. That's one of the attractions of this type of a solar loan product. So it's a secondary lien, theoretically. Yep. Into, it's a secondary lien, yeah. And it's just tied to my own personal credit. So I could sell when the property. When you say my own. Josh Allen gets approved for but the But you're loan. not talking about the person that has it on there. So if they go tear it off and rip it off to the top of the building, that's the risk that you have for doing this. Yeah, yeah. They may do it, but it doesn't affect the real estate asset, the real estate loan or yeah. anything like that. So that that's why I was trying to understand is like, do you actually have real estate hard asset value? And you do because you have the value of the actual yep. panels themselves. But reclaiming that value is very, very difficult. So, so you so, have to have diversification to actually, it's kind of like mortgage-backed securities. Back in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, nobody wanted them, right? Because there's one of them. But when you stack a 1,000 of them together, right, created MBSs, the MBSs actually have value now because the default of somebody tearing them yep. up or not being able to re recap it diminishes dramatically. And that's what you literally did inside of the energy on independent homes. And so as a real estate investor, when I go to sell my asset in year five, year seven, year 10, or whatever that may be. Does that, I, does that agreement that you created so, no, transfer? What I'm, what I'm going to do is I'm going to, because again, here's the other beauty of it, right? I'm not sure when you look at rental property income appreciation, it hasn't gone up a lot. Like a lot of properties are kind of getting pretty similar rents that they were getting two, three, four years ago. What has gone up is the cost of energy. If I own the energy on that property, two years from now, am I charging two twenty five for that energy? No, you're going to reprice that. I'm at two fifty. When I go to sell the property in seven years, whoa, 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 hold on. Are you repricing that yearly on or the lease? Hundred percent. I go look at the energy prices and I go, hey, new tenant, you're moving into my property. New tenant, but if they're there for fifteen years, they're still locked into the original agreement you made with. No, them. because every year that you have the same tenant living in your property, their rent goes up a little bit. And so does so their your cost inflation, of energy. Your inflation adjusting their rent. Well, there's no, just no, a lease renewal. So, it, so let, let's break this down. I want to make sure I, I make this as clear as we yep. possibly can. So if I have a house, 
and I come to you and I say, hey, go put this on my house. And I live in that house for 20 years. And we make an agreement. It's $225 a year. My agreement with you, is it inflation adjusted or is it energy adjusted? How is it or is it fixed so and flat? So if you're the tenant. No, I'm talking about I own it and I go to you and I'm saying do the deal. Yep. Right. So if, if this is your own personal home you live in, you know, it's a it's a different type of analysis. Okay. So this what is I'm two talking about, separate yeah, things. What I'm talking about okay. is I, I'm the landlord rental property owner gotcha. of properties all over Lubbock. And my tenant is living in my property and paying me a thousand dollars a month in rent, twelve hundred dollars a month in whatever the rent is, they're also writing a check for so the So you bill. created your own energy no. income. Yeah, I, I'm connecting the dots, and I've had a whiskey now, and yep. I'm on keto, so yeah. <laughs> it hits me differently. My point is, you, you, you created your whole real estate or, or leasing category yep. on top of actual energy. And so because— so I, I own a lot of real estate, residential real estate. I can go back and put energy on top of these and go to my tenants and say— Let's do this deal. Yep. It's going to be cheaper than what you're paying now, and it's fixed, and it's gone that. But every time I move a new tenant in, I get to reprice that deal Absolutely. to what current market value That's is. Right. And so I'm actually getting appreciation in there. When I go to sell the deal in five years, so what, what happens in five years from now is now all of a sudden, rather than, you know, so what will actually happen is when I sell this property, I'm going to pay off the loan. Yeah, so, you're going to pay off so, the loan, but you got you you got value of the asset in the loan on top of it that makes your cap rates go so, up, makes your value of so your assets. I actually go didn't up. I didn't do this right earlier. So when I told you the twelve hundred dollars a month, that's my own personal net. Mm-hmm. If I sold the property, they're going to collect free and clear because they're not paying a solar loan. They're going to actually collect that two twenty five a month. But in five years from now, that two twenty five maybe three hundred. Sure. So let's just do three hundred times twelve months. So that's an extra $3,600 in on, income. On top of the, the origi- rent. The right? rent. Yeah. yeah. So imagine someone's looking at your property, the one next door to them. The one next door to them is just getting, we'll call it $1,500 a month in rent. But my property gets an extra $300 of income because I own an asset. Yeah. That asset is an income producing asset to me because it's an energy asset priced by market. So that $3,600 divided by six and a half cap rate, I can in theory, and I probably won't, I could, in theory, get an extra $50,000 from my asset because the income justifies it. Yeah, get this, this is stupid. Now, I want to preference a lot of things here because we're talking on a lot of different scales and a lot of different things, and we're moving things around a lot. Yep. So we're moving the goalposts and the targets. What you're talking about is not only a cap rate. So cap rate is a capital return on your investment. So yep. if you have no debt, everything's equal playing field. I want to make 6%, 7%, 10% on my $100,000 asset and I want to make a 6% return. That's called a cap rate, Bullet, a capitalization, capitalization return yeah. on my $100,000 cash investment of 6% or $6,000. Right. What you've done is you've created your own product that sits on an asset that you already own that expands the income Absolutely. stream. And then you get to increase your capitalization rate because of that income well, I increase my asset value. The cap uh, rate stays that, the same. Yeah. Well, the cap rate did. Well, yes, the cap rate does stay the same. You're absolutely right. If it's six cap, it's a six cap across the board. But instead of getting a thousand dollars a month, you got twelve hundred dollars a month, which makes the go overall value of the That's asset right. increase. But, that is absolutely. It's, I, I didn't the, connect the, the dots same, there. Here, here's where, and this I, is going back to that restaurant when I was sitting across from this guy. So, and God so said, I got My wife's got a six fifty. Fifty-four thousand dollar development right now. Yeah, 
So we got 54,000 square feet of a development on the top of it that is outside of what the tenant use is. I could put this on the top of it and almost have another product line. It is. It's just because, again, here's, here's, what, here's what my brain just went bonkers on, and that is every single consumer, and if you, if you live in a business, your business has an energy cost. If you have income-producing property, which is a tenant of any kind, a residential tenant, a commercial tenant, office tenant, whoever it may be, if you have income-producing property, that tenant has an energy cost. They're going to write a check to someone. That's the cost of doing business. Why not? If I own the real estate, why not take advantage of technology assets? And here's the big kicker, the incentive, because here was the comparison. If I go in and on just a residential property and I do a $20,000 remodel of the rental property, I do new flooring, I do new carpet, do new paint, do new appliances, do new backsplash. It looks great. I spent $20,000. Why did I spend the $20,000? What do I hope I get in rent for that extra 20? I hope you, it goes you, up. Uh, yeah, you get an increase in rent you, because of value. Are you guaranteed that rent's going to actually no, go up? No, absolutely not. You hope it does. No. But you're not guaranteed, yes, right? Correct. And did the government give you a 30% tax credit for spending that 20000 Yes, they do. Explain what that means by that. Okay, I'll say this. I can depreciate. There you go. That's all it is. You're accelerating depreciate it because it's an improvement. Inside. But I didn't get a tax credit. No, you got a cr- 30%. No, you got a cra- tax deduction, which is different than a credit. A deduction for everybody that's leasing. So if where my not brain went bonkers is two things that you I get don't get. You get a credit get. when you're inside of the Number one solar side. Oh, my God. I don't go spend the $17,000 for a solar panel until I know exactly what the market price is for that energy. So I know exactly what the tenant's going to pay for the energy and what they're going to pay me on top of it as a premium to be a fixed all-in price. So I get to capture a premium because if their cost is 200, they're going to pay me 225. So I get the premium spread. Plus I get the fact that I'm actually capturing 200 because they're going to write the check to LPNL or me. They prefer to write it to me, quite frankly. Sure. Because they, they hate their utility. Right. And it, it's a one on one relationship. When you begin understanding energy yeah. and assets, the, this is where my brain just went crazy. Because again, we've really branded ourselves, and I'm going to tutor Rise Energy. We're all things energy. And I really wanted to position our company to be as a lot as 100,000 plus LPNL customers are now being confronted and assaulted with confusion and what do I do and pricing and kilowatt and who do I go with? And I, you know, it's just, it's a lot of pain. Yeah, it is a lot of pain. You know, I think any entrepreneur, if you can solve pain, mitigate pain, eliminate pain, you've made yourself valuable in the marketplace. And so rise energy, our company, we wanted to position ourselves to be an all things energy company. I'm agnostic when it comes to actually solar or battery or generator or nuclear or uranium, or I I don't care what the energy source is. I just simply want to find a way to lessen the pain for the consumer, lower their, uh, their, their cost of energy. If we can do that, fix it. Um, I kind of call it control it. And so that's where I'm excited as a company is that we can really come alongside people, households, consumers, nonprofits, churches, healthcare facilities, and really try to strategize how do we bring energy, solve it so you don't have to think about it in a way that minimizes pain, minimizes cost, uh, maybe produces revenue streams for you. That excites me as an entrepreneur. Sure, absolutely. Who wouldn't? Right? You're servicing humanity. You're doing it in a very, very well done way and you're actually saving people and doing it inside of there. So how can people like always how can people connect yep. with you or connect with your company? Because everybody's making decisions yep. right now. When right. the decisions have to be completed? You know, I mean, technically this next uh, February 14th, February 15th is when the first kind of quote unquote deadline hits. Yeah. 
which, you know, may or may not be after the podcast date. Um, and then starting, you know, really every 30 days. So we'll say, we'll say pretty much at the end of each month, if you didn't make a choice, you will get thrown into a bucket. You'll have energy. Your lights will turn on. You'll be in, you'll in a, you'll be in a higher priced energy contract. It's variable. You can get out of it. And so Rise Energy, you can go to getriseenergy.com and you can, you know, sign up on there. We'll direct you to some of our recommended choices of companies that we've vetted. We feel like provides a good product, fixed price, good service. But what I also want people to know is that if you didn't make a choice and you're looking up and it's March, it's April, it's May, or you didn't know what you're doing and some guy knocked your door, called you and signed you up for a plan, which is happening all over the place. They didn't really have your interest in mind. They're not from Lubbock. You can reprice your energy, and we so can you come can alongside always, you and do you that. You can always change, and that's, that's right. one of the advantages of going to that's the right. That's Plus. right. Yep. So no matter month to month, if you don't like what's your service, you can always right. jump ship and and and, go and on because to. we're here, because we understand you know the energy industry, and you know again, someone doesn't know me, I, I really do care. I want the best for people. I think it's going to come down to service because everybody's yep. going to pay. I mean, it's a commodity, just like anybody else. Hundred percent. It's a commodity, so you're going to pay roughly the same price. It really comes down to the service and the value that you're going to yep. add to. That's so, right. Josh, I appreciate you coming on to the show i think this is a great stopping spot uh, there and, there's and, so and there's many covers down the road to pick, pick, we're pick gonna have to things. do this we're gonna have to do this again i definitely uh it's been a, a great podcast for us um i'm knocking my headphones off i'm excited because there's so many my brain's going 90 to nothing well, make right some now. notes because you know as i said earlier I, I there's so many different things you know as a, as a love person as an entrepreneur as a you know as a husband as a father that's just fun to unpack and dive into so let's do it again i definitely love to do it man i appreciate you coming on yep thank, thank you, you so much talk to you soon 